Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Steve Masakura about his new book, Of Limits in Growth, The Rise of Global Sustainable Development in the 20th Century, which is put out by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Steve Masakura about his new book of Limits in Growth, The Rise of Global Sustainable Development in the 20th Century, which is put out by Cambridge University Press. Stephen Masakura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to have you. And before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. I am currently an assistant professor of international studies in the School of Global and International Studies at Indiana University. I'm a historian by training, and I got my PhD at the University of Virginia in their history department in 2013. And what brought you to write this book? Uh, Is this a dissertation? Yeah, this began as my dissertation. And I, I started out with this project because I wanted to analyze one of the most pressing issues in recent history, which is how to reconcile aspirations for national economic growth with the imperatives of global environmental protection. And as I began this research, I was drawn to what had been a surprisingly little studied topic, the relationship between environmentalism and uh, international development policy over the course of the 20th century. And when you when you when you went to Virginia to begin with, is that what you had in mind right away, or is it something that evolved as you as you went through your program? And eventually, I believe your your doctoral advisor uh, Melvin Leffler did he did steer you in that direction? Or was that something you just you knew coming in? Mel did not steer me in that direction, and I did not know I was going to do this coming in. What I was most interested in when I arrived was the history of international development, and particularly particularly the role of the United States in trying to transform or develop societies around the world during the Cold War period. There had been, um, when I began in graduate school in the mid-2000s, a lot of really exciting and interesting research on the ways in which the Cold War world uh, inspired or encouraged or invited the United States to try and bring countries of the what was then called the Third World or the post-colonial world into the broader liberal capitalist world order by providing economic and military aid for their so-called development or modernization. And I was very interested in that literature, and I was very interested in sort of understanding the United States' role in this process. But very quickly, I became much more interested in criticisms of the ways in which the United States had gone about trying to do this, and particularly the environmental criticisms of international development in the mid-20th century. I did a little bit of reading in environmental history. I began working with an environmental historian at UVA named Ed Russell alongside Mel Leffler. And from there, the project began to to 
grow as I really got interested in this um, tension between the desire for national economic growth and these arguments on behalf of global environmental protection that many activists began to make in the mid 20th century. Yeah, that sounds interesting. It is it is a very interesting book. And just before we begin to get into more specific questions, I was wondering if you could just outline your major arguments for the listeners, and then we can uh, delve into more of the specifics and go through how you uh, develop your argument. Sure. Um, let me just give a brief, brief background about um, what the book covers. And the book begins by connecting three significant aspects of the 20th century world that are often not connected together, and that's decolonization, the rise of environmentalism, and the global push for economic development in the Cold War. And the way I link these trends is by showing how many American and European uh, environmental activists formed into non-governmental organizations or NGOs to try to promote environmental protection policies in the third world among many post-colonial governments. Uh, I show how these NGOs tried to convince leaders in the post-colonial world, particularly in Africa in the 50s and 60s, to adopt environmental protection. And I also show why they really struggled to do so. And then I trace how these organizations instead go to focus on the lenders of development aid, those trying to promote development in the third world, chiefly the United States government, the World Bank, and the UN system. Um, and what I argue there is that, on the one hand, the story of environmentalism is often told as a very local or national story. The environmentalism is explained as activists who see environmental decline in their backyard or concerned housewife turning on the faucet and seeing brown water. What I was struck by is how many American and European activists had their sort of awakening to environmental issues abroad and how many of them were concerned about environments in the third world and were motivated to act based on events half a world away that were very unfamiliar to them. And so part of one of the major arguments I make is that the history of environmentalism really needs to adapt to this global component. I also argue that um, environmental NGOs made some really significant contributions by changing institutions more so than winning over hearts and minds is the usual story. Um, I specifically show how NGOs, in fact, became really instrumental in how international development functions in terms of altering the content of foreign aid policies, providing new sorts of checks on what organizations like the World Bank could do, and also by really inserting themselves in the policymaking process in ways that hadn't really been appreciated beforehand. Um, and as I said, the other kind of argument that I make is that most scholars who had written about development and modernization in the Cold War focused on this sort of period in the 1950s and 60s when many people involved in development were thinking in terms of big transformative infrastructure projects to bring about the modernization of whole societies. And while that's still operative now, um, these days people talk a lot about sustainability and talk a lot about the importance of ecological and environmental values. And one of the arguments I make is that this idea of sustainability and sustainable development actually emerges out of the ways in which environmental activists tried to reconcile the global south, the developing world's uh, desire for economic development with environmental protection. And that, in fact, sustainability emerges out of this north-south conflict, and in particular the ways in which environmental activists come to fold a lot of ideas about third world justice and third world developmentalism into their own environmental thinking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very uh, well done how you weave all these uh, issues together. And 
one of the ways I think it might make sense to get at it or give our listeners a better sense of how you develop the book is to start with the figure of Julian Huxley. Mm. Uh, what would you uh, tell, like to tell us about him as a figure that really begins uh, your study? So Julian Huxley is, um, a, most people would know the last name because he's the brother of Aldous Huxley, the famous writer. And Julian Huxley was a very famous scientist in Britain in the early part of the 20th century. He did a lot of work to help popularize Darwin's writings to, um, to a, a broad audience and to help include Darwinian instruction in uh, schools. He was also, a, uh, among many things, a committed eugenicist and was active in the eugenic <laughs> society in much of the mid-20th century. Wow. And in general, he was one of the biggest advocates for bringing science and scientific knowledge to bear on the problems of the social world. And so his faith in eugenics came out of that. Um, but at the same time, he was very concerned about the future of the world's wildlife, particularly after World War II. He was very concerned at how destructive the war had been, and he was really awakened to how modern technologies, be it air, air warfare, be it atomic weaponry, could really remake the natural world in terrible ways. And so Huxley sought to apply sort of scientific principles, in this case, principles of wise use conservation and natural landscape protection all around the world. Uh, after the war, Huxley was chosen as one of the as the first director of the U UN's uh, educational, social, and cultural organization, UNESCO, and from there, uh, Huxley created uh, one of the first major international environmental protection organizations, a group called the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and he was an active participant in forming the much more well-known World Wildlife Fund, the WWF, which he designed to raise money for his first first organization, the IUCN. And you use him as a figure to kind of bring in all the tensions involved. If you look at the first two chapters, it's you, you talk about events like the Arusha Conference and things like the College of African Wildlife Management and the president of Tanzania, the, or excuse me, uh, Tanzan in Tanzania, then Tanzania. Uh, I'm not pronouncing going to pronounce his name right. Uh, Julius Nyeri. Yeah, in uh, his uh, view of development and environmentalism, I was wondering if you could say a little more about those tensions that really evolved in the 60s as Westerners try to raise the issue of environmental protection in decolonizing countries. Yeah, it's a really interesting story because even though we think of the environmental movement as something that sort of takes off in the late 1960s with Earth Day in 1970 and Rachel Carson and so forth and so on, in many ways, people like Huxley and a number of his colleagues uh, sort of in their environmental thinking bore a lot more resemblance to people like John Muir and early 20th century romantic thinkers. And for Huxley, in many ways, the developed world was, had sort of fallen. It was um, corrupted by industrialization. And he and, and many people that I write about in the book looked to uh, the colonial and then emerging post-colonial world as places where you could still find, in their view, ideal, pristine nature. They were particularly fascinated uh, with East Africa and places like the Serengeti, uh, these landscapes that had long held a special place in the romantic imagination of European and Americans, sort of seeking these kind of Edenic landscapes. And this vision of the nature that they sought to protect was one without human beings, and it was one without much economic activity. And so when Huxley formed groups like the IUCN, what he really hoped to do was to convince nationalist leaders 
in places like Tanganyika, which over the course of the 1950s uh, was fighting and trying to become independent from the British Empire and would eventually become independent Tanzania a few years later, to convince these places to close off large portions of their territory from any kind of human use. And to say that places like the Serengeti have such important value to humanity as a whole as these kind of ideal landscapes that you should not pursue any kind of development there. Well, this raised a lot of tensions right away with uh, nationalist leaders. You know, on the one hand, uh, many nationalists did not share that same kind of environmental imagination. They very much wanted their countries to become wealthy and powerful. They wanted to throw off the yoke of colonialism. They wanted to become, the leaders wanted to be able to provide the goods of modernity uh, to their people. And they saw using their land in a productive way. It's key to that. Uh, second, many of these leaders also were aghast at the idea of Europeans trying to insert themselves and tell them how to run their new governments. Um, a big part of the push in, uh, in the decolonization moment was to Africanize the civil service. Um, which is to say to replace all of the imperial civil servants with local Africans. And so in Huxley's mind, this was really worrying because in his view, the only people who were suitable to run and preserve these national parks and game reserves were white European experts. And he was very worried about people like Nyerere's efforts to kick them out. And then finally, there was the, the problem of the, from the Europeans' perspective that nomadic peoples lived on this land. Uh, the Maasai people uh, lived throughout the Serengeti, had traditionally herded and moved nomadically through this territory. And there was really no room for those kind of indigenous peoples in this vision. And so they very much wanted to push those people off the land and say, as part of a broader development strategy, you just need to take everyone off and protect <laughs> it, which created, as you might imagine, lots of tensions. Well, I think if I remember correctly, you wrote in the book that the Maasai people, or maybe I'm confusing it with you talk about in Uganda, when there was debates over the uh, Murchison Falls and people started slaughtering animals to protest the po government policies. Yeah. Uh, like rhinoceroses. And if that's even how you pronounce the plural of rhinoceros. Uh, but the, the people fought back against this kind of uh, this, uh, this reform efforts from above. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a really great story. It's a story of this um, very uh, visually stunning uh, waterfall in Uganda called Murchison Falls that had represented you know, one of these great sort of natural markers to European conservationists. One of the common themes in mid-century development policy was the need for big dams to produce electricity. Um, if you think about the United States, for instance, the role that the Tennessee Valley Authority had in electrifying the South, that in many ways became a model for how many third world countries sought to develop, was to build big dams over rushing water um, and use that to generate electricity to help promote economic development. And so the Ugandan government in the 1960s really wanted to dam the river leading up to Murchison Falls. And European conservationists balked at this notion, and they tried really hard over a period of years to convince the government. They wrote letters to uh, the UK, to leaders in the United States. They tried to convince the Ugandan government through all sorts of political pressure and big political stunts, marches and the like, to try not to dam these falls. And it got to the point, as I quote in my book, that the uh, electricity minister in uh, Uganda, a man named Elisa Kironde, gives this great speech where he says, you know, to hell with animals, to hell with dams, to hell with Murchison Falls. Um, and in fact, shortly after this episode, uh, Uganda, which is in the midst of some civil strife, falls under the rule of Idi Amin, the dictator. 
And in fact, Idi Amin has no desire to build this dam or to help out the Westerners. So he, in fact, uses the area around Murchison Falls as target practice for his soldiers. He invites them to go shoot as much wildlife as possible <laughs> to develop their skills, which does not go over well with the, the conservation. No. no, but that example also raises the uh, the reform effort of the Tanzanian president, uh, Niyiri, uh, with what's it called, the Ujamaa reform efforts, U-J-A-M-M-A. I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but uh, yes. you yes. really get a feel for the kind of backlash against the, these ideas that Africa is going to be kept a pristine place for Westerners to enjoy nature. Yeah, the Ujamaa Declaration is um, Nyerere's efforts in the late 1960s to make Tanzania truly self-sufficient and to sort of advance a very nationalist and in some ways localist vision of development for the country. It's deeply tied into his political project. You know, what's interesting about Nyerere is that more so than some of the other leaders in the areas, he's something of a pragmatist. Um, he doesn't care that much about protecting wildlife for wildlife's sakes. Um, he does see it as a way to perhaps pry some foreign aid abroad because he sees that there are all these white Europeans and Americans who are so interested in it. Um, but at the same time, he becomes, over the course of the 1960s, really worried about the attempts of Europeans more broadly to impose any kind of their view, their views in any area onto his government. Um, he gets very frustrated with the ways in which Europeans support white rule governments um, in neighboring countries, South Africa and what becomes Rhodesia. And he, by the late 1960s, becomes much more fervent in his nationalism. And as part of that, he sees the need to really assert a vision for development that may include a few national parks, but is certainly not going to be anything along the lines of what Julian Huxley envisions for the country. <laughs> Absolutely. And a lot of these tensions that are emerging from the conservation and environmental efforts of the 60s, you know, for lack of a better word, really come to the come to the surface during the Stockholm conference in 1972. And I was wondering if you could say more about that conference as some, something that illustrates the tensions between developed countries and the less developed countries of the G77. Yeah, Stockholm is a really important event. The Stockholm Conference is the first UN conference dedicated to environmental issues. It takes place in 1972. And this is right after the environmental movement in the developed world, and particularly in Europe and the United States, has broken through. And there's a lot of interest in Europe and the United States to coordinate and cooperate over transnational environmental issues. You know, things like air pollution and water pollution really know no borders. They cross across um, political boundaries and need to be dealt with in an, in an international way. And so they get behind the idea of hosting this conference to try to come up with ways in which the world can cooperate over environmental issues. Uh, in the United States, the Richard Nixon is in charge, and Nixon is on board with this. Nixon had created a number of important institutions in the U.S. dedicated to the environment, like the Environmental Protection Agency. And in fact, he says in internal discussions with his cabinet that the environment is a kind of non-political issue <laughs> that the U.S. can do, can get behind internationally to curry good favor in the wake of the difficult war in Vietnam, which has caused so much uh, consternation for the administration and quite justly caused so much um, anti sort of American sentiment around the world. What Nixon clearly re quickly realizes, though, is that the environment is not a non-political issue. And at Stockholm Conference, in a way that really surprises much of the West, the countries of the global South um, have at this point banded together in the UN in something called the Group of 77, the 77 main developing nations. 
And they really protest any efforts to promote international environmental protection. What they say is essentially that environmental protection is a rich man's game. That's a phrase some Brazilian delegates use. It's something to worry about only after you've achieved a certain level of development. Indira Gandhi, the prime minister of India, speaks at the Stockholm conference, and she says, for India and for much of the G77, poverty is their greatest polluter, and that what they need to do is focus on rapid development. And what they say at Stockholm that becomes really important for future international negotiations, and really are still with us in climate talks, is they make a claim for two particular concepts. The first is additionality, and the second is compensation. And very briefly, what these mean is that on the one hand, the if the global South is going to get behind any kind of international environmental protection, there must be additional foreign aid to flow from North to South, well above and beyond what already exists in order to help the developing world pay for the cost of protecting their environment. And what compensation means is that what they say at Stockholm is that if we switch to less polluting technologies, they may be more expensive for us in the short term. And that's going to cause us uh, something of an economic hit. And so we want compensation for money that we would have lo- that we would lose otherwise um, if we had stuck with more polluting, uh, cheaper forms of development. And for the Nixon administration and much of the developed world, this becomes a really sticking point. And they say no to both of those. And thus begins this sort of long tension between North and South over international environmental politics about who's going to pay the costs of protecting the environment in the global South. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very hard-fought debate. There's a lot of a lot of tensions, like you said. But for our listeners, what is the outcome of this meeting? If you could crystallize the importance of it, what actual developments come about because of the meeting, despite all the tensions and recriminations back and forth? Yeah, so there's um, a couple institutional outcomes that are really important, and then there's some broader um, intellectual outcomes that I want to stress. Um, institutionally, the Stockholm Conference creates the UN Environment Program, the UNEP, which is the UN agency that's dedicated to the environment. That's important because it's a UN agency that's going to do a lot of important research. But the developing countries actually succeed in getting the UNEP to be hosted in Nairobi, Kenya. And the UNEP is actually the first UN specialized agency that's hosted in the global south. So symbolically, it becomes a really important institutional marker of the global South's rising prominence in international politics. Intellectually, there's a really important outcome for many environmental activists, and that's that Stockholm crystallizes for them the sort of third world's plight, the global South's plight in international politics. And there's an attempt the year before the Stockholm Conference in 1971 in a small resort town in Switzerland called Fune, where a handful of Western environmental activists bring in a lot of intellectuals and leaders from the global South to hear their complaints and to try to reconcile a lot of their arguments with this desire that they have global environmental protection. So one of the outcomes of Stockholm is that many environmental activists become dedicated to trying to find ways in which the third world's uh, desire for economic development can be uh, addressed, can be recognized, and can be taken seriously as part of a larger environmentalist platform. Yeah, it's it's very important developments you, you raise attention to. And what also I found interesting about this section of the book, and throughout the book actually, is the personalities that get involved in this. Like mm. People like Maurice Strong. When I think, when I think about the book, uh, how a Canadian oil man gets all caught up in the environmental movement is an interesting story, 
that very well complements your institutional history. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the personalities of people like Maurice Strong. Sure. Maurice Strong, as you mentioned, is a Canadian oil man who grows fabulously wealthy um, in the oil business. And not unlike a few other corporate leaders, um, in the process of um, getting really wealthy and using this really <laughs> in basically in, in finding ways to access and distribute fossil fuels, Strong comes to really feel somewhat guilty, not to psychologize too much, but really concerned about the environmental effects of all that he's been doing in his life's work. Um, and so on the one hand, he decides that he needs in his later life to become a real advocate for environmental issues. On the other hand, what's really interesting about Strong and many people I talk to, or, or not talk to, but talk about in the book, is that they're committed internationalists in the sense that they're very concerned about international issues broadly understood, and they're very supportive of international cooperation. And so Strong moves from being a kind of business leader into really uh, an organizer par excellence among a wide range of third world intellectuals, environmental activists, world leaders. And he spends a lot of energy and he's a really good administrator. And so he's, he's really effective at bringing together into the same room a lot of people who would not have otherwise been in that same room. He moves back and forth between the UN, between some environmental NGOs, between some development NGOs, and he becomes a really crucial figure in providing a kind of institutional space for discussions between people from the global south, from between intellectuals and activists, to talk with leaders from the global north and to talk with environmental activists and to provide a kind of institutional home for them. The other thing that Strong does really well is he's really good at mobilizing resources for institutions. Uh, when you write a book about NGOs, uh, one of the first things you learn about NGOs, they spend a lot of their time trying to figure out how they're going to get money to keep the lights on. <laughs> and the really sort of mundane things that, you know, as anyone in a university would recognize about just financing day-to-day -day operations and sort of ensuring the future of your organization are first and foremost on their minds. And what Strong is really good at doing is building connections between organizations that have money like philanthropic foundations like the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation or the UN, say, and the UNAP and building relations between those organizations and the NGO world. And it actually helps to really build up both the IUCN and World Wildlife Fund over the 1970s by bringing them in closer connection to these sorts of organizations. Yeah, it's an important story, and you're right. Um, my scholarly work has done a lot on NGOs, and you're absolutely right. A lot of it is trying to figure out. You'll go through all these documents, and you'll see document after document, who to hit up for money, list of people who have money. Right. Uh, it's, 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 yeah, I, I definitely know where you're coming from on that. And in Chapter 4, I mean, just to transition back to the book, you bring up the – or you devote a lot of attention to this issue of appropriate technology movement and you use uh, an author named Ernst Schumacher yeah. in his book, Small is Beautiful. I was wondering if you could say more about how that story fits into your book. Sure. And so what chapters four, five, and six do is they show different ways in which environmentalists sort of after Stockholm try to rethink the relationship between development and environmental protection. And chapter four is all about technology. Now, as I mentioned with Murchison Falls, when people talked about and thought about development in mid-century, they thought about big showpiece technologies that were key to infrastructure, big top-down things like dams. One of the reform movements that many people get behind in the 70s is what they call at the time the appropriate or intermediate technology movement, which is to say that 
one way that we can make more environmentally friendly development in the global south that still allows for the south to pursue development and try to contend with poverty is to, on the one hand, use smaller technologies uh, that are locally sourced to, instead of big dams, sort of develop hand-dug irrigation canals and to develop more localist forms of power distribution. Um, there's a lot of veneration of sort of craft work in this movement. Um, on the way, to use smaller technologies, hence small is beautiful in Schumacher's phrase, um, but also at the same time to give more local control over the process of deciding what technologies to use. People in the appropriate technology movement talked about hardware and software, which is to say like the technologies themselves are the hardware, the stuff you use to interact with the natural world. But any technology needs effective institutions, and really they need to be sort of chosen democratically by local communities based on local needs. They need that kind of software around them to make them work. And one of the criticisms they make about big development in the 50s and 60s is that it's kind of anti-democratic. It's elites abroad and in their government deciding what local communities need. And that instead, what (coughs) development should be about is empowering local communities to participate in the process of deciding the types of technologies and development more broadly that they want. And so that's one of the major ways in which environmentalists try to reconcile development with environmental concerns. And you, in chapter four especially, you devote attention to the limitations of this vision. I mean, it comes out with all this fanfare. It's drawing on a lot of ideas, as far as I can tell, of, you know, from the 60s, participatory democracy and anti-elitism and hierarchy and moving from the bottom up. But it doesn't exactly work as envisioned. Uh, you use something called uh, the GCOS initiative in Kenya. Right. To explain some of the, the positives and negatives of this approach to development. Yeah. I was wondering if you could say a little more about that. Yeah, and... Um... You know, one of the things that's true, I think, of all forms of development, and it's sort of endemic to the development community, is a sort of desire for silver bullet solutions. And the people who advocated for small technologies were sort of guilty of putting a lot of faith into these as really the key factor to promote this kind of best kind of development. What they found is it was a lot harder to implement their vision um, than it was to imagine it in the first place. And the story you you bring up is this GECOS project, which is a type of kind of small scale wood-burning stove um, that NGOs really get behind in Kenya in the 1970s and 1980s. And in fact, it's kind of clean stoves remain one of the great emblems of small-scale development that many people in the development community today still talk about. In the GECOS project, you had um, this strange program that the U.S., the United States created um, called Appropriate Technology International, which was an organization that was designed to promote this kind of appropriate technologies in the developing world. The NGOs I show had really lobbied effectively for that and had positioned themselves to get a lot of contracts from Appropriate Technology International to fund these kind of local groups. Um, what they realize is that it's often really hard to just take one single technology that may work effectively in one place and sort of plop it down in other places and get the same results. One of the main themes of uh, the GECOS project was replication that they found one place where a community had really used these stoves and they thought that they could apply these everywhere else um, with the same effects. And that turns out not to be the case. One of the other things that happens is that during the 1980s, um, as in the West, there's a growing faith in relying on the market to deliver um, important policy goals and to deliver a lot of goods and services. Uh, this kind of appropriate technology stuff becomes couched in the language of entrepreneurial activity. 
And so in the early and mid-1980s, the GECOS project gets bound up with attempts to identify local entrepreneurs and empower them to build and sell their projects. And in the case of Appropriate Technology International, they end up giving a lot of contracts and a lot of money to these groups to produce stoves that go under in six months, that never actually build what they're supposed to build, that don't do a good job of advertising their projects, so forth and so on. And this sort of faith in the, the entrepreneurs can sort of deliver by virtue of their enterprising abilities, um, this really important service that also falls through. And that plan uh, proves really difficult to implement on a large scale over a long period of time. Yeah, when I when I read that, I thought this is the exact opposite of why this was envisioned. Like you're yeah. taking something and trying, you're, you're turning it into a cookie cutter solution in some of the ways that you were criticizing before. It's quite amazing how people can can make that logical turn. And I think you're right when you're talking about people are looking for a magic bullet uh, to settle the issue. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about that, too, is that you have, by the 1980s, all these people who were involved in promoting appropriate technology in the 70s try to come to terms with it, and they look back and they're like, well, you know what? This really isn't what we meant in the first place. <laughs> you know, This was meant to be sort of locally based and empowering local communities. And if we're trying this replication thing um, and using entrepreneurs to sort of replicate what worked in one place everywhere else, doesn't that sort of undermine our participatory goals? <laughs> and there's a lot of sort of confusion and frustration in the 80s that I talk about, at least in the, the, the way in which big institutions sort of pick up these ideas and try to implement them. Oh, absolutely. And in Chapter 5, you make the transition to uh, another institutional story about the impact of the National Environmental Policy Act and really get into the Nixon administration and foreign aid and really the U.S. policies uh, with the Carter administration and you get into the issue of extraterritoriality. And I was wondering if you could, you know, you don't have to go into every detail of the chapter, but give us a feeling for all the disputes about extraterritoriality and the impact of uh, the National Environmental Policy Act during the 1970s into the 1980s and even on to today. Sure. Sure. So one of the things that environmentalists come to think about in the early 1970s, especially, is that, you know, they look back on their experiences in the 50s and 60s in places like Uganda and Tanzania, and they think, but we didn't really have great success in convincing leaders in the global south to pursue the kind of conservation and developmental programs we want. What if we cut off funding at the source for big development programs? What if there's a way to keep organizations like the U.S. government or the World Bank from funding really destructive um, projects in the first place? And in the United States, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is passed in 69 and comes into force in 1970, has a really interesting provision about what the federal government has to do to create any kind of development or infrastructure project. And what it says in brief is that the government needs to produce something called an environmental impact assessment, an EIA, which is basically a list of the long-term ecological effects that, say, building a highway or a dam is going to have on the local ecosystem in the area. And on the surface, that doesn't seem all that interesting. It seems, in fact, quite arcane, but it's really radical because on the one hand, it introduces the place for ecological knowledge in the policymaking process in a way that it hadn't been before. On the other hand, it opens up the door for all sorts of legalistic activities. And so what the environmental impact assessment says is that, you know, if you get one that says there's going to be a lot of negative consequences to this highway, um, ostensibly the government has to find a less destructive path. But if they don't or they don't sufficiently address the environmental concerns in the impact assessment, public interest law firms 
can sue the government on the basis of that environmental impact assessment for not living up to the terms of the 1969 Environmental Policy Act. So very quickly, environmentalists who are concerned with international development think, why don't we apply this around the world? And they reached for this doctrine called extraterritoriality, which suggests that, you know, if the United States builds a destructive uh, coal-fired power plant in Indonesia, the United States, the NGOs can essentially sue the government if that's going to have a negative effect on Indonesia, whether or not the Indonesian government wants this factory in the first place and whether or not this uh, factory is going to adversely affect the environment of the contiguous United States. And the sort of question of what counts as the environment of the United States becomes a really contentious legal question over the 70s and 1980s. And in fact, many government agencies say, well, if we want to fund a a project in Indonesia, that is, according to the National Environmental Policy Act, which is about the environment of the United States, that doesn't count because it's not the natural environment of the United States (laughs) political boundaries. What environmentalists say is, well, how can you draw national boundaries over something like air pollution, right? I mean, that will go up into the atmosphere and have all sorts of effects for the globe as a whole. And so really, any time the United States funds any project abroad, it should fall into the jurisdiction of the National Environmental Policy Act. And there's really intense debates among the foreign aid ed- agencies. There's really big debates, that uh, arguments that come out of the military. Um, officials from the Pentagon say over the course of the 1970s, you know, if this comes to pass, if environmentalists sort of win the day with their argument, are we going to need to prepare an environmental impact statement before we declare war on a country? Are we going to have to identify the ecological effects of the war in advance? Is that going to curtail our ability to protect the national interest of the United States? And it raises these really profound questions about how to protect the global environment in a world in which national sovereignty reigns supreme. Yeah, it is interesting. And uh, the Carter administration has to pick up the pieces, so to speak. Uh, And Carter issues an executive order that, if I remember the particulars, it agreed that for a lot of different projects, like if you're going to build a coal plant in Indonesia, you have to file an environmental uh, assessment. But there was a lot of uh, loopholes that got uh, that got people out of having to do environmental impact statements. I was wondering if you could talk about the Carter administration's policies on this issue. Yeah, and so I think, um, and you can probably speak to this a little bit too, but any historian who studies uh, Jimmy Carter in particular, you know, there's a lot of interesting material to work with there. And you end up sort of seeing Carter as a really deeply conflicted person who's trying yeah. really hard to, um, you know, speak from the heart and the issues that he really cares about while also, you know, being realistic and pragmatic about the world the way it is. And Carter was someone who cared a lot about the environment. Some people may remember that he actually put solar panels on top of the White House at one point. (laughs) The Reagan administration took it down uh, promptly once they came into power. But, you know, Carter was, I think, if you look into some of his uh, diaries and some of the documents from the Carter Library, he was really sympathetic to the environmental point of view on this issue and really sympathetic to the extraterritorial issue. But he's getting all sorts of angry memos from really important policymakers. Secretary of Defense Harold Brown writes him that says, you know, this is really going to screw up our foreign policy if we adopt this. And so he passes this, he announces by executive order that, um, you know, the, the National Environmental Policy Act does apply to the global environment. But he says, um, you know, issues of absolute national security can trump that, which leads lots of open interpretation. 
He says that only applies in full to areas of the global commons, places like Antarctica, for instance, where there's no clear national sovereignty boundaries. Um, And he ends up sort of phrasing the executive order in such a way that, you know, doesn't really please uh, a lot of people in the foreign policy community because it opens up the door for a lot of lawsuits. But it also doesn't uh, please a lot of people in the environmental community, because even though they uh, do bring a lot of lawsuits uh, subsequently under Carter's executive order, he actually ends up producing a second one to try to clarify the first. Um, In the end, the way it's structured and the way that the law is written allows for judges to err against extraterritoriality, which since then has been the sort of general trend is to not apply extraterritoriality, except for very specific cases of the so-called global commons. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like Carter to anger the left and anger the right. Uh, sounds about right. <laughs> to think very deeply <laughs> the whole way and, and to sort of wonder about the sacrifices that people could be taking in the process. Yeah, and you, you also in this chapter, I mean, you talk about how the NGOs, you know, get involved with the courts to further their agenda. But one of the big parts of the chapter is the section on the World Bank, yeah. which is very interesting. And I was wondering if you could say more about uh, the, the the efforts of NGOs to rein in the World Bank and its development alone. Yeah, and so this case against the U.S. government in the 1970s really becomes an inspiration for a much wider array of similar cases to do these kind of environmental review procedures in many different development institutions. And in the 1980s, there's a lot of effort to do this in the World Bank and to create some sort of environmental review process in the World Bank that can sort of hold the bank officials accountable for the types of loans they give for these big development projects abroad. And NGOs um, try, the World Bank case is really interesting because it sort of reveals the diversity of tactics that NGOs find themselves uh, falling upon and relying on to, to make these policy changes. And so on the one hand, in the World Bank case, you have really um, sort of elite, well-educated lawyers who work for public interest law firms and work for NGOs constantly meeting with bank officials and trying to negotiate within the bank ways in which they can make institutional reforms. At the same time, you have a lot of <laughs> grassroots mobilization and marching on the streets. A, a couple of well-seasoned rock climbers at one point during bank negotiations climb on top of the World Bank and unfurl a giant banner that says World Bank destroys rainforest. <laughs> um, they also try really hard to sync up with emerging civil society groups in the uh, global south that are beginning to fight back against development projects for other reasons. And in the 1980s in the World Bank case, environmental NGOs in Washington develop a sort of loose coalition with a number of activists in Brazil who are fighting against big development projects, either on grounds of indigenous rights, saying that these projects are going to force indigenous peoples off their lands. And so you have, in an interesting sort of twist of fate, environmentalists aligning with indigenous peoples, after 20 years earlier, trying to force them off the lands. Um, you also have the beginnings of um, sort of uh, labor and human rights and environmental movements in Brazil as well that protest these at the same time. And so NGOs will try to fly these activists from Brazil to Washington to speak before Congress about the need to rein in the World Bank. Frankly, many NGOs end up seizing with um, a very kind of right-wing strand of the Republican Party in the 1980s who more or less kind of want to end all foreign aid altogether and want to end the World (laughs) Bank altogether. And there's a couple um, key congressmen, one from Wisconsin, uh, Kasten, who they uh, work closely with, who uh, want to sort of cut congressional funding to the World Bank. And the U.S. is the biggest supporter of the World Bank. So this is a huge deal for the bank. 
And the NGOs are more than willing to sort of rely on that kind of hardline tactics to get to try to force the bank to make big environmental reforms. They're even willing to sort of cut off funding to the bank to get them to try to reform. And this sort of diverse array of tactics does ultimately succeed in getting the World Bank to develop a really robust environmental program and a robust set of environmental procedures. Now, many will argue that they're not um, robust enough. And there's a lot of efforts over the 1990s and into the 2000s to reform the environmental procedures in the World Bank further. But it ends up becoming, in many ways, a held up as a real success of NGO uh, activism and a real success of sort of how they can alter policy in these big institutions. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because when you have on one layer, you have success, you have many people who are not happy. Right. And it raises the issue of how people in non-Western countries view these developments in the Western world as far as the rise of environmentalism. I mean, you make a really good point. Um, I have it in my notes here. This idea of the environmentalism of the poor versus environmentalism of the West. Yeah. And governments vary beyond that concept. Governments very unhappy about their programs not getting funded, like the highway program in Brazil or dams in India. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the reaction in the non-Western world or less developed countries to the seeming, you know, tightening environmental laws in the West. Yeah, there's a lot of fault lines that emerge in this process. So I painted it just now as a kind of rosy, triumphal story, but it's not really that at all. And the the book goes into a depth to show sort of the fissures and. One of them is this division between kind of the environmentalism of the West and the environmentalism of the poor. And the environmentalism of the poor, which is a term that begins to get used a lot in the 1990s, sort of talks about local, what we would sort of loosely recognize as environmental activism in places like Brazil and India that is really fundamentally intersectional, that is focused a lot on issues about access to clean water, access to um, resources necessary to help people get out of poverty, to empower local communities. That's often still at odds with many uh, Western environmentalists who are focused either on, you know, the, the big parks and nature reserves of, that Julian Huxley was so concerned about or who are more focused on these kind of top down big um, initiatives. And the other big fault line that emerges is that, you know, as these environmental NGOs in D.C., these sort of handful of educated lawyers are effectively rewriting the ways in which the World Bank um, operates, these are obviously unelected people. These are activists in Washington. The governments of places like India and Brazil get quite angry. <laughs> Say, <laughs> you know, we want these dams for our national development. Um, we, in fact, have already agreed with the World Bank to get these, uh, to get loans for these projects on certain terms. Who are you, activists in Washington, to say that these global environmental imperatives trump our national sovereignty? And in fact, the way the, which the World Bank operates and much of the way the world operates prizes national sovereignty above all else. And so there's tremendous pushback among third world governments at this kind of rewriting of the rules of the bank, for instance, um, in ways that greatly empower unelected activists at the expense of the governments who have entered into these relationships with bank officials. Yeah, it's a very interesting story, and it raises a lot of fundamental questions about what environmentalism means to, to different people. Yeah. And where environmentalism and development fit together. And you also, I forgot to mention it earlier, you have a good section that deals with uh, how leaders in less developed countries didn't just flock to get on the appropriate technology train. They didn't yeah. think it was the same as um, having the big dams, having the big industrial development to uh, you know, address all the problems. Uh, 
I mean, it's not an exact analogy. It reminded me of people with PhDs uh, telling, you know, prospective PhDs, don't get into this. There's it's a terrible job market. And, and, you know, it's all this stuff. But people really want a PhD. They like the you know, what, what, what it signifies. Yeah, but, and uh, uh, that just is important to stress, too, that, you know, development is obviously a material process that reshapes the world in fundamental ways. And it's, you know, reshapes the natural world, it reshapes how every human being lives. But it's also a symbolic project. And things like big dams can be really powerful symbols of uh, governing parties uh, initiative, of a nation's vitality. You know, we often think about um, these kind of big showpiece technologies as crucial to our narratives of national development. Think about things like the railroad in the United States, or if you like, went back to the 19th century World's Fairs, the way in which like big, um, you know, uh, the Bessemer converter or something like that would be trumpeted as like a great emblem yeah. of American European civilization. And so for many governments, there's an important symbolic to development as well that like, you know, you can go make some, uh, go chop down some trees to make some canoes for that are appropriate to your local transportation. And they would say, no, we want a railroad for material purposes, but also because it's symbolically powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an important point. And you get to the point, I mean, the, the, the fact there's, I can't go into all the details, but it was fascinating when you mentioned in the, in your book that James Baker had some environmental credentials that uh, yeah. he could he could point to that I didn't know about that at all. It's, but but the main go ahead go ahead uh, just on this point. So the book sort of the last chapter focuses on uh, the real Earth Summit, which is the twenty year follow up to Stockholm, and it's also the conference in which the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change gets negotiated for the first time. Um, and what's interesting is that looking into the records of the U.S.'s uh, um, initiatives and diplomacy towards the Earth Summit is that many people in the George H.W. Bush administration were really interested in environmental issues. And someone like James Baker was someone who was involved in a lot of the World Bank cases in the 1980s in his uh, role in Treasury there. And so he uh, very much sort of became awakened to environmental issues in the World Bank, became very concerned about the fate of the global environment over the 1980s. And by the time the um, the the real Earth Summit rolled around 1992, you had many people in a Republican administration who were actively concerned about the global environment and really wanted to sort of take seriously environmental issues and think through ways in which to make uh, effective environmental policy. Yeah, I want, I want to get to that story in a little bit, but I, I think before we get there, the topic uh, for our listeners that you really hit home and you drive home the process of how it came about is the idea of sustainable development mm. and where that comes from. I mean, things like the World Conservation Strategy uh, the report coming out of the United Nations. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about where the sustainable development idea comes from and how it develops during the 80s into the 90s. Yeah, I got ahead of us there. I apologize for that. But so, no, that's all right. The, the last sort of reform chapter looks at the ways in which environmentalists try to rethink the way in which development planning takes place. Uh, it, development in the 50s and 60s and into the 1970s, whenever countries sort of made development plans, and almost all made plans, uh, you know, the five-year plan was widely popular around the world, they were often premised on fundamentally economic concepts, that if we put this amount of money in this sector of the economy, we will produce X amount of goods um, over a period of time. Many environmentalists looked at that with a big problem. They said, well, what if development plans were not premised on economic principles alone, but also ecological principles? And what if there was a way in which to frame sort of the conservation and wise use of resources in a way that could satisfy both environmental objectives, but also developmental objectives. 
And this sort of gets to the heart of how environmentalists begin to try to reconcile economic development with environmental protection. And what I talk about over the course of the 1970s is the effort by the the IUCN and the World Wildlife Fund, those two organizations that were so prominent in the 1950s in my story, how they try to come up with what becomes this document called the World Conservation Strategy, but it's basically a, a model that all countries can use based on their different ecosystems to pursue economic development that also protects the environment and protects ecosystems in critical ways. And in fact, this document is really the first one to popularize the term sustainable development, sustainability. Now, what's interesting about this is that sustainable development uh, certainly means sort of injecting this ecological knowledge into development. But in the World Conservation Strategy, it has these really deeply, at the time and to this day, quite radical messages. It says, one, that the global south has a right to development and that all conservation must be put in the service of that development. But they, the document also states sort of along the lines of what the Global South had argued at Stockholm, that the West has an obligation to rewrite the sort of rules of the game in the international economy and to, on the one hand, provide tremendous amounts of foreign aid, this idea of additionality, to fund this kind of sustainable development that will take place in the third world. And the document goes as far as to formally endorse the new international economic order, which had been the set of proposals that the Global South had put forth to the UN in 1974 to rewrite the global economy in really fundamental ways to sort of sanction um, new regulations over commodity production, to put price floors on raw materials, to uh, provide the Global South greater say in international environmental, uh, sorry, international economic institutions this really sort of radical reimagining of what the global economy would look like. And that's what environmentalists are doing in the World Conservation Strategy by 1980. Yeah, and then you develop a lot of a lot of people in the 80s debate this and try to figure out ways to address the environment, having ultimately to deal with the, re- with the issue of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, redistribution of wealth, redistribution of uh, costs, things like the Brundtland Commission and all these other studies. But what also you weave into before we go on to uh, chapter seven and the end of the book is this idea, especially in the 80s and 90s advance, people having to deal with the argument that environmentalism is best protected by the free market and technological innovation yes. as the yes. salvations to uh, all, the, all the potential problems. And maybe you can say a bit more about that to set us up for uh, conference in Rio. Yeah, and so this yeah. idea of sustainable development is deeply tied into these questions of third world justice when it's conceived. But very quickly, um, the phrase sustainable development takes on a lot of different meanings. And, you know, if you asked random people on the street today what sustainability means, they would sort of touch on sort of thematically similar ideas about the need to protect the world for future generations. But they would present, to be a, they would present a lot of different sort of tactics and policies and strategies to get there. And over the 1980s, sustainability becomes sort of deeply embedded with this idea that um, – you know, strong government intervention, which is really crucial to the world conservation strategy, like careful planning and management of ecosystems and economies is really not the best way to go about either promoting economic growth or protecting the environment. What many in the West come to suggest in the 1980s that it's in fact using the market and what sustainability should awaken us to is the need to sort of sustain market incentives, to sustain market-based solutions to environmental problems and to uh, really cut back on the role of the state as being an active force in sort of promoting industrial policy or promoting 
environmentally friendly economic development and instead sort of unleashing in a variety of ways the powers of private enterprise. Yeah, it's an argument that goes a long way in the Bush administration. And uh, we're talking about Bush number one right. here. Right. The conduct of the United States uh, at the UN conference uh, on economic, or not economic, environmental, or not the environment and development in Rio in 1992. I was wondering if you could give the listeners a sense of all the controversies surrounding the Bush administration's participation in this event, or non-participation, if you want to. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the Real Earth Summit is this big UN conference that's meant to, on the one hand, negotiate the Climate Change Convention and what that's going to look like, but also to negotiate a number of other really important conventions, the biggest of which is this global convention to protect biodiversity um, around the world. And the Bush administration has a really interesting relationship to the real Earth Summit, because on the one hand, as I mentioned before, Bush and many advisors um, are really concerned about the environment. Bush himself declares on the campaign trail in 1988 and again in 1992 that he's an environmentalist. He says that word. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine a Republican these days coming out saying I'm an environmentalist. Um, But that's something that Bush um, really believed and was really concerned about. At the same time, Bush and many people close to him were really skeptical any schemes for extensive regulation, uh, particularly international regulation. Um, And it's no coincidence that this is the case, because if you think about the dates, the real Earth Summit comes right at the end of the Cold War, Um, not only after the Cold War ends, but the Soviet Union collapses. And so while the Climate Change Convention and the Biodiversity Convention, Climate Change Convention more so, um, they evoke a lot of discussions about the need to promote international regulations over greenhouse gases and to get countries to agree to you know, binding commitments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Bush uh, and many advisors balk at this on the one hand, and they say, you know, if we learn anything from the lessons of the Cold War, it's that the free market is the great uh, force for good in the world. And so any type of international environmental regulation is just going to be sort of Soviet communism in disguise, and we're not going to get behind that. (laughs) As all this is going on, the G77 emerges as a powerful force once again. Um, And even though these efforts at things like the new international economic order sort of uh, fall asunder over the course of the 1980s because of the third world debt crisis and a lot of other reasons, the G77 remains a really powerful negotiating force in environmental issues. And the same topics that are on the table at Stockholm become on the table in 1992. And once again, the Global South demands additional aid. Um, They demand the right for countries in the Global South to develop first and then protect their environment and so forth and so on. Marie Strong oversees the 1992 conference, just as he had in the 1972 conference. And he, uh, in sort of an offhand remark to the press, says that, well, in order to achieve true sustainable development and to make a climate change convention or something like that work, we're going to need hundreds of billions of dollars uh, each year in extensive aid from north to south. And as you might imagine, officials in the Bush administration were none too pleased when they heard the secretary general of the UN conference announcing that, that that's a necessary component of any effective agreement. So the Bush administration, on the one hand, sort of pushes back against European countries who are more sympathetic to a binding agreement. And they also really reject these arguments from the global south asking for this additional aid and the arguments that many like Murray Strong and those who had crafted the World Conservation Strategy are making about the need to increase resource transfers to help the south pay for environmental protection. Yeah, you, you make a big, uh, you, do, you devote a lot of attention to this global environmental facility or kind of like a global environmental fund or the green fund, yeah. Which, yeah. which is a separate topic. But this idea of putting a pot to money of money together to address environmental problems and how the Bush administration 
kind of deals with it, but tries to uh, smoke and mirrors. Uh, so it's it, it can look like it's actually contributing a lot, but actually isn't. I was wondering if you could say more about yeah, that. So, yeah. Uh, as part of these negotiations leading up to Rio, um, the wealthy countries agreed to create this thing called the Global Environmental Facility, the GEF, which is going to be housed in the World Bank. And it's going to be a special um, organization that will provide loans specifically to help implement um, many of the treaties and conventions that are being discussed at uh, the conference in Rio. And so on the one hand, it seems like this is a grand gesture that they're taking these concerns about additionality and compensation somewhat seriously. But as I talk about in the book, if you sort of go into the details of how this works, it looks far less beneficent and far less like this grand sort of concession to the global South than it actually is. On the one hand, the U.S. only agrees to commit about $50 million, which is nowhere near enough to what the global South is arguing and that what anyone would sort of reasonably suggest is the amount of money necessary to help transition the economies of countries like Brazil and India to a greener economy. Uh, moreover, the Bush administration really looks at the GEF as a way to sort of make it seem like they're using, uh, taking the additionality uh, question seriously without making any other substantial concessions anywhere else. Um, in fact, they say that their $50 million contribution to the GEF really reflects their uh, desire to take seriously the global the concerns of the global south. And it's a way to ensure that they can um, uh, sort of make this symbolic gesture. All the while, they know that by housing it in the World Bank, uh, in which the United States has preponderant voting control over, <laughs> for one, and also financial control, they're going to be able to greatly steer that uh, aid in the first place. And in fact, many countries of the global south very quickly realize this and say, well, the GEF needs to be independent of the World Bank if it's going to be meaningful. And very quickly after the GEF is formed, it becomes a source of a lot of different arguments about, you know, how independent it really is and how big it's actually going to be. And so this gesture that's meant to sort of curry goodwill ends up doing the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of other stuff. I know we're I'm, I've kept you a very long time. We don't have time to get into it, but how the Bush administration rejects a biodiversity it doesn't go with the biodiversity treaty and the agenda 21 uh, agreement really doesn't require anything of, of the Bush administration or the United States. Uh, it's really an interesting uh, way of getting at this, the big picture issues. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what, what, and what lessons do we draw from uh, your, your section in the book on the chapter uh, on, on the Rio conference or you devote a few pages to development since uh, 1992. What's what lessons do we draw about the environmental movement where it is today? Well, there's um, I'll focus on one in particular because it's particularly timely at this moment as countries from around the world are meeting in Paris um, to discuss the future of international climate change policy and what that's going to look like through the UN. And this is a, a something that's going to be discussed in Paris, but it's going to be come back to many times subsequently over the coming years. And the biggest obstacle to an effective agreement at Paris is once again the issue of climate financing and this issue, this, this issue of how the global south is going to pay the costs of protecting the environment while also transitioning to more greener forms of development. And if you read a lot of the comments that have been made by uh, U.S. officials, Secretary of State Kerry has said this a number of times, um, even many European officials and many U.N. Uh, bureaucrats, you know, they say that... Um, the kind of the G77 uh, activism belongs to an earlier era. And because countries like China and India are contributing so much uh, carbon to the atmosphere now, 
those kind of old arguments about additionality, especially as big companies continue to grow, those old arguments about additionality are no longer as valid as they once were. And that countries sort of need to get over that. And the countries of the global north have made these big pledges. Uh, in 2009, the countries pledged to give $100 billion a year by 2020. Uh, they didn't specify where that money was going to come, how it was going to come, whether it was going to be public or private money. But they said, you know, that's sufficient. And one thing to take away from this book, and one thing that I've come to firmly believe is that those arguments are not going away. Um, many countries in the global south have long voiced this notion of historical responsibility, historical grievance for climate change. Um, and that these issues of climate finance are not just about countries now trying to get more money to pay for solar panels, but they're deeply tied into the historical experience of colonialism, of decolonization, of what it means to be an independent sovereign nation in a world economy in which the rules of the game have been structured to favor many countries of the global north. And that really any meaningful agreement on climate change and mitigating emissions in the future must also be based on an agreement about coming to terms with these financial obligations that developing countries really fiercely um, hold on to because they have such this, such a rich and deep history. Yeah. And that's, it doesn't seem like it's going to be solved any easier than it was before. Uh, even even with the, the recent meeting in Paris, uh, I'm actually going to Paris uh, on December 9th. So I'm kind oh, of great. being, uh, being this, uh, whirlwind of activity on almost every angle. Well, you can spread the message to negotiators there, too. Yes, I will. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll just I'll give, deliver my history conference paper, just get up and try to bust right into the conference <laughs> and make a, make a scene. That'd be great. Uh, before before I let you go, I have to address this topic, which I think is interesting. And one of the, the at the heart of your book really is this issue of the legitimacy of Western NGOs and what they're doing. Uh, you have you, you developed this in your conclusion. You talk about where NGOs and government fits together in this process of understanding how the world operates. I like this concept that you use called NGOs are co-evolving with government rather than minimizing state power, at least in terms of your study. I'm not saying this applies in every situation, but I was wondering, I mean, with the argument that if someone said, because you use an argument by a guy named Sebastian Malaby in foreign policy who really attacks the environmental movement, I mean, what do you say about the argument that who are these wealthy Westerners and NGOs to set environmental policy? They're not elected by anybody. I mean, what, how, do you, how do you deal with that type of issue? Yeah, this is an argument that, as I mentioned, many countries in the global south have made and that many um, observers point out all the time who are critical of, the, say, the power of environmental activists in places like the World Bank. And what I would suggest is what this story shows is that these sort of distinctions that we make between government and civil society – um, as these two sort of separate spheres of, of interaction really have blended together, if you look at the history of environmental NGOs, at least. Um, and in many ways, NGOs have been woven into the fabric of governing in really profound ways. Um, and for better or for worse, environmental activists are, and, and activists of many sorts, are, are deeply involved in governing practices. There's a lot of institutional connections, you know, as I mentioned the review procedures in the World Bank, for instance, have uh, a review board that's composed of many different types of civil servants and activists and bank officials, so forth and so on. And that these sort of old distinctions between civil society and the state as being totally separate really don't hold water in the way in which government actually functions now. And in fact, what we've seen over the past certainly 50 or 60 years in the United States, and I would argue in many international institutions as well, is a growing interconnection and really folding in of many um, 
uh, environmental activists. And that has greatly changed the nature of activism as well. And that's what I mean by co-evolution is that working closely with governments has really changed the nature of a lot of NGOs as well um, and has made them really rethink the types of projects they fund, the types of activism they pursue, and ultimately the kind of compromises that are often necessary to meet. And the, the sort of the question that is ongoing as this evolution continues is, you know, how to ensure that more voices are brought to the table and that more concerns are heard and that these institutions, as they continue to evolve, really become pluralistic, if not democratic, and are really capable of bringing in and uh, effectively finding ways to govern large parts of the world in which people at all layers and sort of levels of power have a say. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very well put, and it's a very interesting problem, uh, especially when you get into the ideas of co-optation versus democratic input and trading democratic input for effectiveness uh, raises a lot of interesting issues that I find myself dealing with in, 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 my, in my scholarship. Mm. And another issue, just one more point, and then I'll, and then I'll let you go. What stunned me, and I didn't realize this, and, I, and I'm interested what you what you know about the scholarship. You don't have to give me a detailed answer, but what I read on page 278 about U.S. patent law and how companies can claim the rights to uh, materials in, in less developed countries for us and that they don't have to give any of the profits to the country stunned me. And I'm not sure why. I thought, I mean, I knew there was something like that, but I, I didn't think, I thought they had to at least reimburse for use of the land. And the U.S. government has defended that in a lot of international forums. Yeah, this is a issue in the biodiversity treaties. Countries like India or Brazil that have sort of large forests that have gone sort of largely unexplored for Western medicinal purposes. Um, You know, a lot of corporations and sort of uh, Western governments really want to explore those territories, get access to the deep parts of the rainforest and see if there's materials there that they can't use to make new medicines. And these companies really want and are protected in certain aspects of U.S. law to develop patents and to get access to that. Um, there are forms of compensation that must flow to these countries as well. But this is one of the big points of contention in the 80s and 90s was exactly sure. sort of what level of control governments yeah. would have and what kind of compensation they would have. And one of the big reasons why the U.S. does not ultimately sign the biodiversity conventions, one of the few countries that doesn't, is because they're concerned about um, some of the arguments that countries like Brazil and India make about really more firmly controlling the resources on their territory if they're discovered by a company that's based outside of the country. Yeah, that was that was very interesting uh, part of the book, at least for me. And I want to thank you again for taking so much time to talk with me. Uh, The book was very interesting. It's well written. It's a book that I think the general leader can pick up and understand. It's, it's, the argument is very clear. It's coherent. It, uh, it makes sense. It's, it's, it's a book I think a lot of people will understand. So I applaud you on writing it in a straightforward manner that I think will appeal to the general leader, a reader. excuse me. But before I let you go, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about your future plans, whatever they may be. Well, um, let me just also say, first and foremost, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for those kind words. Um, that really means uh, quite a bit to me, honestly. And, and it, I really appreciate you taking the time to read the book so closely and give me the opportunity to talk more about it. Um, in the uh, short term, I'm going to focus very heavily on uh, wrapping up my classes this semester. <laughs> but in terms of uh, research, I got very interested in this book, um, as you might imagine, on sort of the flip side of the environmental critiques of economic growth, which is 
the persistence of a desire for economic growth and what economic growth um, has meant over time. And one of the things that I didn't get a chance to write a lot about in the book that struck me was that there was a lot of criticisms in the 70s among environmentalists about how economic growth was measured, and a particular criticism of relying on GNP, gross national product, or now gross domestic product, GDP, as a proxy for material well-being. Um, environmentalists criticized uh, development experts and national leaders alike for worshiping the goddess of GMP at all costs. So that's got me really interested over in the sort of the history of the meaning and measurement of economic growth, how economic growth has been conceived, the different theories that experts have used to try to implement it around the world, uh, how the ways in which economic growth has been measured has shaped the way in which development strategies have played out on the ground. And so one of the things, the stories that hasn't really been told that I want to get at in great depth in the next book is the way in which, um, as part of the push for development in the mid-20th century, um, the statisticians from the UK and the US rent, went around the world to post-colonial countries to instruct new leaders there what to count and how to quantify their economic activity based on Western models, and how thinking about growth in this kind of numerical uh, national income accounting way has shaped development uh, over time. and. You know, I'm very interested in critiques of all this stuff as well. So I, I hope to look at other ways of sort of measuring and defining well-being. I'm interested in environmental critiques of that. I'm interested in focusing on what many call social indicators, things like the Human Development Index and literacy. And I'm now really interested in ways in which nations are trying to quantify gross national happiness and to try to suggest that improving happiness in some kind of social psychological sense should be the end-all be-all of government purpose. And so my new book will explore all of that in, in various ways. I'd be very interested in that. I mean, to, to, just to break it down, I'm very interested in the parts of history that can't be quantified. I have a big beef with uh, poli scientists on trying to measure everything with rationality and models and hard numbers. I think that's not always the best way to look at the world. So that, that sounds like a wonderful project. Yeah, and, and what I'm really getting at is sort of where that urge to quantify comes from and why it's become so pervasive. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Stephen, thank you for talking with me once again. It's a great book. It's a very interesting read, and I wish you the best of luck down the line. Well, thank you so much, and, and I appreciate you taking the time to give me this opportunity and to talk through the book with me today. Thank you. No problem. Take care. You too.